today's episode of the Sixers Beat, Rich and I react to JJ Reddick's interview with Ben Simmons before diving into our analysis of what to expect from the Sixers defense this season. Be sure to follow Rich on Twitter at Rich underscore Hoffman. You can follow myself at Derek Bodner NBA. And be sure to leave us a rating on your podcast player of choice if you can. Enjoy the podcast. All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined once again by Rich Hoffman on a Sixers Beat, part of the Athletics Podcast Network. How you doing, Rich? Derek, I'm doing fine. It's uh, it's the first day of fall, and it kind of feels like it. Or it really it's the does. Second, second day of fall, actually. Yeah, but. I don't, I don't know. All I know is that I went out to get coffee this morning, and it was freaking cold. Uh, I am not a huge fan of how quickly that transition happens, but it, uh, you know, it also means basketball's back. This is the last podcast we will do before we have like legitimate basketball news to talk about, but this is one more we got to get through. We, of course, will start this off with a little bit talk about Ben Simmons since he appeared on JJ Reddick's podcast, and then we'll do the second part of our two-part series where we focus in on our expectations for the defense. So I'm not even really sure because he was Ben was on JJ's, and this is really the first time Ben has talked. I know he had he did media day, or not media day, but he did a press conference after the trade but he really hasn't spoken too much on the record about what has happened here, what happened at the end of his Philadelphia tenure. This is a long podcast over an hour long where he touches on a lot of the topics from the Hawk series, um, you know, to his, his, his mental health struggles to discussing the shooting to a little bit of talk early on in the podcast about his early days in Philadelphia. Where would you, I guess, what was your overall takeaway from it? Uh, it, it was certainly, and, and we like JJ a lot here. I think he's, uh, both been very good to us and also is just good at whatever niche in media he is carved out where he's both an analyst on ESPN. He's good at that. And he's podcast host as well. I, I think I, I appreciated that he got to a lot of these subjects. It, it was interesting that, that he got there, but because he's friendly with Ben Simmons, because he's a former teammate with Ben Simmons. He wasn't pressed the way that some sure. people, including myself, would like ultimately like to know. But I think we were talking about this a little bit beforehand. I'm not sure you're going to get Ben Simmons to open up any more than that anyway. Yeah. No, Ben is intensely guarded. Uh, he's He's very private. And I think a lot of times that comes off as dismissive, but I think, and there could be some to that. Who knows? I don't really know Ben Simmons as a person, but I do also think he's just a guarded individual with his public comments. And I think that came across on the podcast, but I think you're right. Like, like Ben's not coming on our podcast. He's not coming on, probably not going on Zach Lowe. Like the size doesn't matter. It is. I think going on a friend was a feature, not a bug on a friend's podcast. I think that was helpful for JJ because he could get him and book him. But I do agree with you. Like, I think the initial question JJ asked almost every time down was logical and good, but it wasn't, fo- it was followed up like two friends having a discussion, not so much like a journalist, like we would do, which again is why he would go on that podcast. It yeah. Was, and it was smart of, of Ben. <laughs> it was funny though, when I was maybe a little disappointed there wasn't a follow up or the way the question was framed maybe wasn't quite as to the point as I hoped it would be. I thought back to the millions of times I've asked Ben Simmons what I felt is a good question and got nothing. No, if you ask him a pointed direct question like that, you, you don't get an answer or at least a worthwhile <laughs> answer. It's, it's a hundred percent true. You, you lose, you get nothing. You get uh, either him kind of laughing at you or just c- cliche gobbledygook bullshit like all, all the, those things no uh, and I, I so, think a lot of people like that listen to that podcast might be frustrated with jj and i get it uh and as a journalist i get it but i also as a journalist i think that might have been the path to take to get the most out of ben that you're possibly going to get which wasn't i think as much as a lot of people wanted was maybe more than a different line of questioning would have gotten co- completely agree I, I don't think you were getting a, a better ben simmons honestly when i was listening to the beginning of it i was thinking like Man, this is like an hour, 20 minutes long. Ben does not answer. No, no, yeah. He does not offer long answers. He is the anti-Joel in a lot of ways. Joel could talk 
for three minutes and just not stop talking. Uh, Ben is on the complete opposite end of that. So it, uh, yeah. So, and I will, I will say the one positive I thought, and again, it's not like Ben goes into it a hundred percent. And this is a subject where you might not expect him to do that. I thought there was a, on the positive side, a, an, an admission that he was dealing with a lot of mental health issues, sure. which, as we have said a lot of the time, that is what we think this all boils down to. And how Ben has kind of portrayed that over the years, specifically last year, definitely can can take some uh, umbrage, some have some qualms with how he has gone about that. But at least there was a realization like, hey, I'm going through shit. Uh, my mental headspace was really messed up, which is basically what he said multiple times on this pod. On this pod. So um, that, that was, I, I would say, the main positive. And then, you know, when you get to the specifics of the other things, there's there's definitely some truth in what he said. And it's also coming from his side. And, you know, whether it's, you know, these documentaries now, podcasts, whatever when the one party basically controls all of the information, they can give their side of the story and sure. make themselves seem a little more sympathetic. And you know, I don't think this was necessarily as sinister as, you know, some of those documentaries. I think this is just a guy having a conversation. Um, but I, I do think that the result is roughly the same. Yeah. And uh, the whole Ben Simmons thing is one of the toughest things I've, I've tried to figure out how to cover because so much in sports, politics and a whole bunch of other facets of life we try try to boil down into like one explanation what is the one explanation we can use to package and explain what's going on and i do think ben was one of the instances where that's just not like i think he was both dealing with we can call it you know like anxiety or feel of fear of failure or confidence issues and i think he was going with through a lot of personal stuff which by the way isn't an all entirely something that was brought up after the fact he did mention that you know, when there was the spring leading up into the Hawks series. Absolutely. He, he he talked about this very briefly, but talking about getting his mental right. You s- clearly see that he was going through confidence issues with the free throws leading up to that. I think he shot like 50% from the line after the All-Star break. There was the family drama and issues that were going on, which for the most part, you know, I think we at the time we brought it up, but we didn't dwell on it in part because we didn't have all the information in part because it was such a personal matter. You could see how that was weighing on him. And all of this was talked about at the time. And then it sort of boiled over into the meltdown. And I think it was a lot of people, ourselves included, probably might have lost perspective. But it's not all something that was brought up after the fact. But I think you can package all of these together, acknowledge that, you know, he was probably going through some mental health issues, that there was probably stress from everything going on in his life, that he probably had this fear of failure that he never really overcame to be the basketball player he needed to be. And also, he then took some steps to try to force his way off of the the Sixers. I think everyone looks at it like, well, if you mention some of the actions that he took, you know, in the spring as you or in the fall as you're trying to force his way off, then you're denying the mental health component. Or if you're talking about the mental health component, then you're denying the fact that he made mistakes in the fall. And I just don't think any of it is that simple. Uh, You know, I think he clearly took some steps to try to force Sixers' hand to force a trade because. He, you pretty much have to by the constructs of the CBA. And also, I think he was probably going through some stuff and trying to bring that up and mention both aspects or all three aspects or all four aspects or however many different things were going on at the time. Every time you talk about it is tough, but it's it's never been quite that simple. Um, and quite honestly, like the one thing I've always pushed back on, I think a lot of people say he doesn't care about winning. I've always pushed back on that just because you don't see people commit themselves defensively like that, you don't see people take pride in the attention to detail it takes on defense and the effort it takes on defense to be successful. Whether it's an intense fear of failure or just shooting with the wrong hand or anxiety or mental health hurdles, whatever it is, listening to him talk about, I think maybe my biggest takeaway, listening to him talk about what was happening early on in the Sixers' career and the way they turned it around, that 16-game winning streak, I hope he gets whatever he needs to get right. I really don't have any grudge. And I can be frustrated at times that the lack of development happened. I can be frustrated at times with the way the end came about. While still, like, I think one thing he said that was right on that podcast was, well, people are frustrated with me because I'm good at other stuff. I think that's 100% true. 
And I hope whatever happens, he gets in the right spot to succeed in life. Uh, I really don't hold any ill will, even if some of the details and some of the moments of that whole era were very, very frustrating. The one thing he didn't say out loud that was part of, you know, there's the discourse of, oh, well, both sides could have done things differently. And it's in, you know, in, in, in reconcilable differences with the divorce. The one thing he did not say on the pod, which is a thousand percent true, is whatever mental health issues you were dealing with and whatever lack of support you weren't getting from the Sixers, dude, you did not want to play for them last year. Right. <laughs> and that's like, that's you did why not give think, them much of an option yeah, there. No. And like he, I think, I, I mean, I just, I just said what I had to say. Like, I think we try yeah. to boil it down into one thing and acknowledging both aspects of it doesn't deny the other. Um, I think they were both, he was going through stuff. Understandably, I think for a lot of it, and also some of the steps he took to try to force Sixers' hand was going always going to cast himself as a villain in Philadelphia. So I get if you are extremely angry with Ben, it's a it was it was a tough. I mean, this is this, sports are so weird. Everything is so public, everything is so emotional. Uh, it's tough to it's tough to maintain perspective. I think. Yeah, and he, um, you know, like again, there were other things like, you know, he talked about people wanting to take his money and that he didn't care about the money. And I think to a degree, he probably didn't care about the money, but ultimately like there was an arbitration here. Yeah, he no, he, he doesn't care. completely not care about the money for sure. For sure. Um, and then there's things like, you know, he just called out people who, who leak some details and, and news reports. Well, you know, who else leaks some details and news reports. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was a, I mean, people. it was a one-sided interview among friends for sure. For your people. Uh, yeah, so let's get. That's kind of my overview on it. It I, honestly, I mean, I'm. It's a, a week before training camp. I'm happy that he did it. You know, I, I, I didn't think it was quite as bad as. Uh, it, I saw my my Twitter timeline yesterday, and look, my Twitter timeline is heavily influenced by Philadelphians and people who care about the Sixers. They were not happy about it yesterday, no. and. Uh, and the line of questioning, but uh, overall, I thought it was. Um, I, I'm 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 happy it was done, and I I do think it can kind of put a a bow on the the whole Ben Simmons situation. And well, I certainly you know, hope so. Hopefully, like when he plays here, it's. I mean, it's never going to be normal when he plays here, and unfortunately, he's going to play here twice a year, and they're going to play the Sixers four times a year. But m m maybe that'll go to help. Let me. Uh, there, there were a couple funny things in there. Who do you think he was talking about? He said, uh, I think it was with the shooting. He said, people in Philly want something to or have something to say about everything. Reporters, when uh, when I post a picture of a car or a, a cat or an animal, they say, get in the gym. Yeah, I, <laughs> I feel like it has to be. Like, I can't imagine it was any one of like us. Like I can't imagine Kyle going on Instagram, on Ben's Instagram and commenting on that. Or Keith, certainly not. What if I search? What if I search from Derek Bodner NBA get in the gym and it was the first thing that was there, and well, we forgot on, that you were just you were on his case in 2016, <laughs> and and we just forget about that because it's six years ago. I don't think that happened. No, I, Maybe I, I, I did I don't too. All that happening. Um, it, it would seem like a sports radio kind of guy. Like I, I don't think it would be a reporter that was around all the time. Maybe asking. You could see how we're doing that. Although he, there would be so many spelling mistakes, you wouldn't understand what he was saying anyway. So who knows? It's a good point. <laughs> get in well get in the gym i feel oh, like he but like even he for howard up, that would be hard to get that wrong i mean do we have to go back to clough lee yeah. you could screw up anything you could i don't even know how you autocorrect the club you don't you missed anyway i'm looking at the keyboard right now you and i are right next to each sure, other so sure. I, I can i can see that i i would say in terms of the shooting and in, in the way he described it it's just another example of just like what a paradox he is yeah. like where He's, I think he said, let me see if I can find If there actual. was one part that like legitimately frustrated me, it's how they kept going back to, oh, well, he generates all these threes. Yeah, I don't care. Okay. Yeah. Like, like I, uh, we talked about this last pod. I don't deny his passing talent and instincts, but when you're a non-shooter that in like the spacing is compromised, it doesn't matter how many you create when you don't have the ball. And also it's tough to create when you have the ball because nobody respects your shot. Glossing over the impacts that his lack of shooting had on the offense um that was a little disappointing which jj i would imagine inside in his head knows. he knows a hundred percent hundred okay 
I think it's at one point he says, there's a lot of shit I'm bringing to the court. My goal is to win. And that's always how he's deflected this major issue and, and how he's a paradox and that with basketball, when we talk about sacrifice, when we talk about, you know, winning a championship, I'm sure you're going to hear this stuff from Doc. It's taking less shots, passing more, playing defense. Those are the things Ben is good at. But Ben's sacrifice was actually getting over the fear of failure to do the thing that everybody loves to do, which is shoot, which just did not come naturally to him. And he just, he still doesn't seem to get that. (laughs) There was a a point where he joked about taking a bunch of threes with Kevin Durant on the court and doesn't sound like he's going to take a ton of them in. uh, No, I don't expect they changed Ben Simmons this season. In Brooklyn, there was another point where he said, you know, look, I'm trying to get easy buckets, but that was the whole point. Hey, dude, uh, you can get the easy buckets. There's a reason you get through the first round of the playoffs every year. And the second round, you have to get hard buckets. Yeah. And uh, and that requires being able to do everything. So it's just a guy who's it's, – it's unfortunate that his one major weakness and the thing that, frankly, he's afraid to do is the most important thing on a uh, – on a basketball court. So it's it's pretty amazing how good he is at the rest of the stuff to be as impactful a player as uh as he is. But yeah, it, it I didn't like uh I felt myself rolling my eyes during those explanations a little bit, which we've we've heard plenty of times before. Yeah. I mean, I it, it's it's you you brought up it's amazing he got this far without addressing it. Yeah. I mean, I I think it became such a mental battle the shooting with him that he almost convinced himself that it doesn't matter and i think right now he probably truthfully believes it and it's a shame it's a shame i, I uh we, anyway anyway uh, was there anything else let's see i mean he talked a lot about his back issues which look i i definitely believe that he had back issues like remember the the play in milwaukee where he went up for a dunk and he sure. had to walk yep. off the court and he said he was throwing up afterwards like Especially, too, for him, you could see how somebody like him would have back issues. He's a very upright runner for a tall guy, too. Um, that just seems like something he'd be dealing with perhaps more than the the average player. But, uh, yeah, and that's about it. I think uh, he, he also did not, to, I guess to his credit, he, he kind of danced around. And I wouldn't say to his credit, he's just not a very confrontational person, I would say. He did not, like throw anybody under the butt. He did not like specifically call out Joel or Doc. JJ did. JJ, JJ did. Yep. JJ's like the politician who can just, he, he literally can, can buddy up to every side of this issue and still be friends with everybody, which is, uh, I got, I got to learn how to do that. Uh, cause he said <laughs> he was just like docking him <laughs> threw you under the bus. That's indisputable. <laughs> uh, yeah. So overall it was, uh, certainly an interesting listen on September 23rd. Don't usually get that stuff. A lot of a lot of NBA stuff going on yeah. over the past few days. A lot of with the Sixers connections too. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a wild time. It's a wild time. A lot of I, lot of stuff to talk about here. When media day I, hasn't even gotten here. I, okay, I, I guess real quick before we get to the defense stuff, because I, I don't really want to get into the uh, moral issues of the whole thing, because frankly, and we're talking about Ime Udoka getting suspended for a year by the Celtics. I don't really want to get into those details because here, here's what's the, the important thing right now. We don't know all of the details right no. now, and that's that's a situation where it's key. I will uh, say one I, thing I guess that— just that, what, what are your overall reactions to it? Well, like you, I don't want to go too far into this because we don't know all the details. You know, but one of the things that sort of caught me off guard, and this is more about the reaction to the report than than what happened or what the Celtics did. One of the things that caught me off guard was how many people I've seen— you know, after it was initially reported that this was a consensual relationship, I saw a lot of people respond that, you know, basically, oh, you're suspending him because he had an affair. Uh, and then they argue that that's personal life and they should stay out of it. And it's, you know, that's not the concern here. If it was just that the Celtics came to know that Ime was having an affair with a random person, the Celtics aren't suspending him for that. You know, the problem here is that they both work for the Celtics. And even if it is purely consensual and there's no other details to it, that's still a, just a massive, massive power dynamic, which is very problematic. So was the suspension warranted or not? It's tough to comment too much on that because we don't know all the details of what led up to it. And this is a very sensitive topic. you know. But the core of the problem, if it is a consensual relationship and there's nothing else to it, 
the core of the problem isn't that Ime had an affair. He could have been single or in an open relationship, and it still would have been problematic because there's just a power dynamic that has to be accounted for. It has to be. And I get why Celtics would have a policy in place to address this. Most teams, most businesses, most organizations do and should. I don't want to give them cre- too much credit, because, in part because of who they hired or who they put in place as the interim. But I give them credit for having a policy and acting on it. Uh, but in terms of impact, I mean, yeah, you're talking about now a 34-year-old, very green coach now having to take over a team who is a finals contender, a championship contender, one of the Sixers' two or, two or three main threats in the Eastern Conference. And that's just a lot of upheaval real close to the season. Yeah, I think if you're looking at it from a Sixers' perspective, that's a lot of uncertainty. Just a lot of uncertainty. I, the other thing, too, and this is, uh, I, again, I'm not trying to wade too deep into the waters when, I, I again, we still don't know everything that happened with Ime Udoka and that relationship he, he had. Suspending him for one year is pretty crazy. Like, the, the idea that, like, he's going to come back next year no, and, and just I, be fine. Yeah, and I think, like, when I first saw the one-year suspension, it's like, well, if it's drastic, like, if what he did was worthy of a one-year suspension, why isn't he just fired? But I think when you take a step back, my read on it from afar is that they're trying to coerce him into quitting. Uh, you know, maybe it's for financial reasons, recouping that contract. It seems like they are hoping he will quit. Could be. Like I said, that's entirely speculation. That that's the only way I can reasons. justify a one-year suspension and not an outright termination. Because if something is, is severe enough to warrant a one-year suspension, then you would figure he would be fired. Completely agree. And for a team that seemed to bond... And, and kind of grow up and ar- like, around him, like had that mid-season being... bounce. Like that team could have just completely annihilated itself internally. Like that could have been a completely combustible situation, and they absolutely came back. And you don't know how much was the veterans, how much was the assistant coaches, how much was Ime, but that was a team that was on the precipice of disaster halfway through the season and turned it around in one of the most remarkable turnarounds in uh, that you've you've seen. I mean, that team was really really tough to watch there in January. Really tough to watch. So it, it will uh, it's it's a major upheaval, major uncertainty on a contender for sure. They also uh Time Lord's hurt again too, which is, you know, it doesn't seem like it's a it's not a season ending thing. It seems like just training camp right now, but Al Horford is a hundred years old and doesn't have a, a season in a regeneration tank. Yeah. Yeah. Al Horford is like he might be two years older than this coach that they have now too, which is crazy. Yeah, they they did not have a good week as an organization after having a very good, I would say, six months as an organization yeah. before that. Good uh, even off-season, right, too. Right through the offseason, too. They didn't stop with uh, with loading up. I mean, they've had a, a brutal couple of weeks because Gallo got hurt, too. That, yep. uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's a very messy, pretty shocking situation, honestly. And, uh, yeah, a lot, lot of upheaval there. And it's not, it's weird that it's not the Sixers. It's weird that the Sixers are the team that's just kind of, Moseying on into training camp, you know, with all systems go. Thankful that it's not the Sixers. Wish it wasn't anyone, but thankful it's not the Sixers. As you all know by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using the BetMGM lines to make all our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use the bonus code TABasketball, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic. Plus... Up to a $1,000 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code TABasketball. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game. Claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 21 plus to wager. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Nevada, New York, and Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Colorado, D.C., Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-522-4700 in Kansas and Nevada. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. In partnership with Kansas, Crossing Casino and Hotel. In Ontario, if you have questions or concerns about your gambling or someone else close to you, please contact Connects Ontario at one 866 2600 to speak to an advisor free of charge sports betting is void in georgia hawaii and utah and other states where prohibited promotional offers not available in nevada and new york don't forget 
If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use the bonus code TA Basketball and you'll get a one year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,000 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, let's move on to the defense. You know, this is, I think, a little bit tougher to gauge than the offensive side, just because a lot of the data that we had last year on offense, I feel like will translate to some degree. That will very much be a Sixers or a Sixers an Embiid, Harden, Maxi derived offense. Whereas defensively, I feel like there's been so many changes and so many of the key pieces are new. I think a lot of the data that you might look at, even after the Harden acquisition, you could might be able to throw out the window. But where would you, I guess, overall, what are your expectations and what are your biggest question marks? Uh, my expectations are for them to be good. And, and for part of the reason that, that I think of the regular season, they're going to be good. It, it's probably twofold. I think number one, two years ago when they had less upheaval and they had Ben Simmons and Danny Green, you know, like c- coming off, um, you know, a year in L.A. and. You know, Danny was banged up last year. Uh, basically, when they had the personnel two years ago, they were awesome defensively. And, and I think that's a credit to Doc, and that's a credit to Dan Burke, the defensive coordinator. The The other thing that we've we've mentioned a little bit, and I don't know if we talked about it last week, I suspect that Joel Embiid might play a little bit better defense yep. this year, where uh, there were games last season where he was uh, – he was just chilling a little bit on the defensive end. And I want to get out in front of this and say, that's fine. You know why? Part of the reason he was chilling was that he had to shoulder this massive offensive load and that he was playing the entire freaking season. Yeah. There was a stretch during last year when Joel Embiid played 40 of 41 games. And it was like, it was didn't even seem like a big deal at the time. It was just like, yeah, okay. It's, uh, you know, he gets the random night off once every month for load management, but that's it. And, and and all systems are go besides that. So, you know, after, I believe it was after they played the New Orleans Pelicans in a completely forgettable home game in January, I asked him, I was like, hey, uh, were you, uh, there ever times you're kind of taking it easy? And he smiles. He's like, yeah, he was like, I was really dogging it in the first half. Huh? That was, that was pretty bad. That took that to an extreme level. And he said, and that really comes out on the defensive end, right? Like, that's where you can really see that I'm not giving that effort. But, like, the Sixers need Joel to pace himself. That's not a uh, – you don't want him to be the 2016 version, you know, jumping into the third row twice a game because he's on a 20-minute limit and he's not playing any back-to-backs either. So, uh, I but with the offensive firepower they have now, with Harden, with Maxi, who will just get them – Harden in particular will just get him easy bucket after easy bucket – I suspect that he might be able to give a little bit more effort on the defensive end. And that to me, combined with the additions of Melton, House, and Tucker, it feels like it should be in the top 10 again. Yeah. And top 10, I think they squeaked post Harden. They were 10th, uh, according to Cleaning Glass. Again, like you mentioned in the last pod, that time period is weird, uh, but they were right there. In terms of their location, effective field goal percentage, they were ninth, so right in that spot. Um, don't really force a lot of turnovers. Pretty good in in half court. Disastrous in transition. Uh, I think their opponent's three-point percentage right around mid-pack, which is another thing that you would look at, especially in a shortened season, as potentially noisy. So if they're mid-pack, it seems like that was probably pretty... Uh, you're not. It's not going to change drastically in either direction. Not a whole lot of luck involved in those numbers, theoretically. But like I said when we started, it doesn't really matter because there's so many new pieces. And we start looking up and down the roster at players who were not here this year, but who will be key defensive contributors, you know, going from Melton to House. Those are probably the two biggest. Tucker, um, those are three monster additions and three players who should get pretty good playing time here and play key roles as role players. Their role players now can defend. And that's something they really haven't had outside of maybe that disastrous Richardson Horford year, which those were some really expensive role players and also bad offensive fits outside of that year and where they end up defensively that year. They were pretty good. I don't feel like they were as good as we thought they would be, but they, they were, were pretty good. Def- they were like six, they were, they were like six or seven, yeah. but they, they had to be first with that team. Yeah. And because you knew the offense was going to be a struggle. 
And you know what? The the defense that year, when you looked at the data, the the starting five-man unit was a very good defensive team for sure. But again, like you said, like the role players were, were bad defenders. They, they're role players for years, and some of these guys are still on the team. It's not guys who can defend. It's guys who you think can shoot and you know can't <laughs> defend. So it's like... It's it's no three and no D a lot of the time. It's 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 not Marco Bellinelli and Ursan Ilyasova. That era is past. They at least we knew they could shoot. At least at least we knew they Shea were giving you something on the other end. Like talk ourselves into sometimes. Yeah, and I, I don't think the the defense. I mean, certainly not Ferk's defense is uh is overcoming. <laughs> no, no, he needs to overcoming. Make those shots. Yeah. yeah, yes, yes. Upgrade over Bellinelli. Uh, no, does that matter at all? No, <laughs> it doesn't. Uh, yeah, so. Those are one thing. I, um, it's funny you brought the that team up. Do you get any vibes like that? Like the the discourse surrounding that team, that 2019-20 team before was, oh, this team has a chance to win the finals. They have yeah. a chance to be a great defensive team. Do you feel like even a little bit of like apprehension on the, the similarities between that team and this team? So that team, the deficiencies showed pretty early in the regular season. Like you just saw real early, like, yeah, I don't think this is going to work offensively. Yeah. And when they weren't truly dominant defensively, like you, I think the cracks showed pretty early. This team, I feel like the I, I don't have much concern that they're going to look mediocre or simply good in the regular season. I think there's a very high chance that we're going to go into the playoffs and say they're clicking on all cylinders. They're a good two way team. I think it's always going to come down to whether or not Harden and Embiid can do that in the playoffs. So I think it's it would take longer to have that concern either proven or disproven. Whereas I I feel like the that that Horford Richardson team sort of went off the rails much quicker than expected. But like there's a little bit I'm always concerned when you start talking about them as title favorites just because I've lived in Philly or the Philadelphia area my whole life. And it just seemed like that net, like when they actually do do well, it comes out of nowhere, except for maybe 08 Phillies. Like that was a, a buildup. I'm, uh, I'm feeling it with the birds right yeah, now. Yeah, no, I'm very I, nervous. When you get my expectations up, I get very nervous. Very, very J- nervous. Jalen, can you tone it down just a little bit? Like wait for like week 15 or 16 to completely light people on fire. Okay, yeah. go ahead. Yep. No, but uh, yes, I'm nervous, but it's mostly because I still have those questions about translating playoffs and also it's Philadelphia and bad things happen in Philadelphia. Nice. Yeah. Uh, yes, they do. So I, I don't think they're, the similarities are, uh, you you could feel some of them, but the, the big thing was that team just did not have the level of shooting that this yeah. team has. And that is in the version of James Harden. That is with Tyrese Maxey, who is pretty much the polar opposite of a player from Josh Richardson. Like Josh Richardson took forever to do stuff. Tyrese Maxey <laughs> yeah. takes no time at all to do stuff. In the time it takes Tyrese Maxey to catch the ball and get to the rim, Josh Richardson would have been on his his fourth dribble and second step back. That was yeah, and that was uh, I, I think something that I did not factor in enough. Where it's like, oh yeah, he's a really good athlete. It's like yeah, but he doesn't apply it on the offensive no. end. Like that doesn't matter. Like if he's taking forever to dribble the ball and pull up for these bad mid range jumpers. So that's a difference. And also the the players that they added. Like you said, bad things happen in Philadelphia, and one of the bad things that happen it, that happens all the time is that players forget how to shoot when yep. they come here. I was I was legitimately watching Markel Fultz college tape the other day. Uh, like you and I have access to a thing where we can just go to any team any year and start pulling up video. And my God, man, just watching him like drain sidestep twenty five footers contested on a garbage team that had no help around him. And then seeing what we saw in summer league, it's just, I still, it's just, it's so depressing in part because again, I think Markel's a good kid who tries hard, but also in part because that team could have been a fucking dynasty, man. He was so good in college. He was so good. The elevation he got on the jumper, his body control and touch around the rim, his confidence shooting from deep. I've Uh, never, I've never seen such beautiful shots down 25 to UCLA. (laughs) It was unbelievable. Yeah. (laughs) So, look, that team was garbage, man. Outside of Matisse, I would challenge almost anyone listening to this podcast to name another player on that team. You, not you, because this is our job, but like most people listening to the podcast, you got Matisse, you got Markel, and I bet you, you can't name anyone else. I got one more. I know you do. You're, this is not you, because it's your job. Go ahead. 
show off. Go ahead. David Crisp. Yes. Yeah. He was the shooting guard on the team. Okay. So where is he? Is he playing in Europe somewhere? It's probably I mean, Europe. I, I bet don't she's know. playing. Probably. A- any good, a- a- even ones that are on bad teams, any decent Division One college player can can play in Europe at some time. So we don't know if uh, Tucker, if Melton, if House, if their shooting will just go off the rails because that happens here. But in theory, they can shoot more than the uh, sure. the crew that was here a couple years ago. And it's it's funny, like that's what the Sixers have been over the years. It's been a, a tug of war between toughness, skill, skill, toughness, which way do we go? They seem like they, I, to me on paper, they have the best combination of the two this yep. year. But, you know. We'll see if that uh, if that happens. Uh, another thing, as far as the defense is concerned, because there are some similarities to the 2019-20 team, that front court is big. And I don't really think this is like quite as much of a concern. But Tobias David Harris Chris was playing in the NBL last year in Australia. Okay, good for him. Uh, I think he. Uh, if you look at the... <laughs> you're throwing me off Chris right now. <laughs> <laughs> Le- lefty shooter he uh we're gonna have to cut this out <laughs> all right let me get back on track tobias harris is going to have to play the three more this year is the point i was making yeah. he uh pj tucker throughout his career i had this in the in the pj tucker post when he first came here most of his minutes the past few years have been at the four he played for the Heat, 93% of his minutes at the four, 7% of his minutes at the five. Now, with the Bucks, that changed a little bit. Obviously, you know, different personnel. You have you have Brooke and Giannis on that team, so you're going to play the three a little bit more. But I would say P.J. Tucker is going to guard a lot of the, the best wing scorers, but in, in general, Tobias Harris is going to have to guard smaller players this year. And is he going to be up for that? I think he is, if he shows what he did in the playoffs, like, Tobias Harris is a key here because we thought there was a chance he could get traded this offseason so other players could come in and provide the depth. Well, the Sixers kind of got that depth anyway. So yep. it's like there's no problem having Tobias Harris around if he continues to be. Uh, and I think Seth, Seth Partnow used this term in his in his player tiers piece, connector, where he's got he is clearly the fourth guy right now. Like there's the hierarchy is you have Embiid number one. You have Harden and Maxi kind of in their own tier next. Tobias Harris is in a tier all by himself. The rest of these guys are role player, catch and shoot guys, where Tobias Harris is good at a lot of different things, but he has to apply them in the correct way. Uh, he has to do the sacrificing that Ben Simmons loves to do, where yeah. uh, it doesn't come as naturally to him. And, and, and part I, of I that, he's part of that is defending. Yeah. yeah. By the way, Noah Dickerson is playing is coming off the bench in the BBL in Britain as well. The only other person on a team I can find is still playing professional basketball. <laughs> anyway, anyway, none of this matters. Uh, What's yeah, Lorenzo no- Mo- I'm going to look up Lorenzo Romar now. What's he doing? <laughs> Go ahead. Um, Pepperdine. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I think Tobias is willing to. The question is able. You know, he has struggled a little more offensively when playing the three. You know, I think when you take away his ability to get downhill off the drive, uh, I think that is... it might force him, especially since he's not a super willing catch and shoot three point player. It sort of forces him into maybe some of his bad habits and some of the post-ups that you don't really want, especially now that you have so many other options around him. You know, I think it's, it, I was impressed with the way he defended last year in the playoffs, especially in that Toronto series. He's still not the shutdown versatile type that you would ideally want, but if he is your third or fourth best defender on the floor, you're in pretty good shape. If he's your second best wing defender and you get that, that's pretty good. It's pretty You're good. It'll be all right. Yeah. It's just he's pretty good at a bunch of the skills you would want as a fourth option. And he's somewhat capable as a three, but he's not really great at any of those roles. So it will be interesting to see how he adapts. Now that he, there's so much uncertainty last year from will Ben show up? How do you play off of Tyrese as a point guard? I loved in your column where you included that bit of Joel praising him for finally passing, but you had to adapt to his style of play. Then you got James Harden, you know, two thirds of the way through the season, you had to adapt to his style of play. Well, now you're coming in, you know, you've got James Harden, you know, you've got that Embiid Harden pick and roll that you have to grow. And you know how Harden likes to pass the ball. How can you now make yourself into a better complimentary piece? 
And I think for Tobias, that's going to be huge. And he's, again, am I 100% confident he's going to have either the confidence to continue shooting when he hits a slump or the defensive versatility you would ideally want? No, but he's solid in a bunch of areas where you hope. You hope. I think that's a generally a rich man's problem, though. Yeah. Like, is, is Tobias the in perfect... Tob- in Tobias' case, a very rich man's problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, very good. <laughs> Wasn't even thinking about that. So some other things I'm thinking of. They, last season, dropped down to 17th in forcing turnovers. The year before, they yeah. were third. Yep. And that, uh, that obviously... A lot of Ben there. A lot of Ben. A lot yeah, of ben he, he's a big part. And I think having Ben also just turned Matisse into... When those two played together, there were a couple of games where it was just insane. Like they were just stealing the ball every single time. I think you would like that to get a little bit better this season with Melton, especially, I would say Melton and, and House. Uh, yeah, I, I do think there is still a little bit of a cap on their upside in that regard, just because you're you're starting the two short two, people on two munchkins in the yeah. backcourt for sure. So that's a big thing. But they were also a super slow team with Harden. Yep. It, it would be nice to like, Get a couple steals, get the ball to James Harden, and I think he'll do pretty good things with that ball in transition uh, in, in general. While probably moving slower than the rest of the team, that's okay. It's fine. Passes passes cover a lot of ground. That's fine. As, as long as, you know, it was, uh, the best pass Harden threw last year, the pass he threw to Maxi, I think it was game one yeah. against the Raptors, where yep. that was a transition play where he threw like a, probably like a 60 foot bounce pass over his head, like a throw in style, and he hit Maxi, who had hit a pretty absurd reverse layup considering he was moving 300 miles an hour. Those are the types of plays I think you would like to see more of. Maybe not quite that spectacular, but hard in making those passes. And then uh, the other thing that I'm curious about is, are they going to try the small ball stuff? I, I would suspect they are. Uh, I would suspect we do see some, some PJ Tucker. It, it's funny with doc. Like sometimes you wonder like how much he's going to experiment, like how much he's going to like try some stuff. When the experiment is like the 37-year-old proven winner, though, and it involves done him it at three different stops doing it, I actually think they are going to try that a little bit. And so if you do have P.J. Tucker, do you like have like a, a one to five switching defense? I would love to see if that works because there were so many times over the years when it was with Ben at center and Ben could do a lot of things defensively, but he couldn't protect the rim. And that was that was an issue. Now that you have both probably a better kind of positional rim protector defending center, which is funny to say because PJ can't jump nearly as high as Ben can. And also the other personnel to switch better around Ben because Ben, you know, when they would play five out, you know, like Cork Miles would be stuck in there sometimes, you know, it would be the the personnel was not always that great. Uh, Are they going to experiment with that? And how much does Montrez screw that up? Because that is different from how they play around Joel Embiid and rightfully so. I do not want to see Joel Embiid switching on the point guards in the regular season, especially. Right. He right. can do it in the playoffs. He can do yep. it in key situations in the regular season. I That is not a knock on Joel not being able to do it. Just don't want to see it. It's too much work. When you look up and down the roster at players who are liabilities on defense and are definitely going to be in the rotation, there's really only three. You've got the, the, the two munchkins in the backcourt, uh, like you referred to them as, um, and then Montrez. Of the people we are certain are going to be in a rotation, a regular rotation, those are the only three. Like if you went down to the top 10, having seven average to above average defenders, is you're in a pretty good spot, especially when one of them is Joel Embiid. Now, Firk could work his way in, and he'd obviously be a liability. George, uh, if he works his way in to notice, that logjam. Notice that you said that they weren't in the top 10, though. Like George Niang being your 11th guy, that's pretty freaking yeah. good, man. Yeah, no, it definitely is. Definitely is. Uh, they, have, they, have a, uh, they have a deep team. They have a deep team. Like I said, most of my question marks come down to whether or not James Harden can be a top 15 to 20 player in playoffs. And if that happens, I think they're very well positioned to have a uh, have a really good team, both in the regular season and playoffs. But that's a, a pretty big question mark that we'll find out. We'll find out. Um, all right. So I guess we'll end this up with sort of like your prediction of where they finish in defensive rotation and or defensive rating and any sort of like small details they're hoping to see. Yeah, I just want to see the the scheme versatility. I, I think when when the Milwaukee Bucks won the title a couple years ago, there for years they they just killed teams in the regular season with that drop coverage yep. and Brooke Lopez and no rebounds but, and yep. 
But when the playoffs came and teams could scheme it up and teams could shoot a ton of threes against them, they had no way to react. And they were not as good of a regular season team the year they won the title. And yeah, obviously they got a little bit lucky along the way with Durant and the injuries and stuff like that. But that season, finally, Bud was like, all right, I'm sick of winning 65 games in the regular season and just not having any answers in the playoffs. They switched a lot and they like, when it came to running Spain pick and rolls, they they switched it in really goofy ways. And it was when I say goofy, it was good. It was good. They right, were trying right. shit out. And I, I just want the Sixers to uh, to do that. And that's a little bit of a question because as much as uh, I like Doc and Dan Burke, they are very much of the school. We do one thing. We master it. We do it really well. And that's how a lot of teams operate. But I, I do think there is a, a former Sixers coach would say they are mastering vanilla. Yep. And I, I just think there is enough. To, and I remember when Doc, they, they got Harden and I, I asked him, I guess Doc wasn't in a good mood that day. I was like, are you, are you going to, are you going to switch anymore? Like, or whatever? Goes, no, no, we're playing our defense, like, or whatever. He's got to learn our defense. And, uh, they did a little bit of switching, but I, I think that's largely what happened last season. I don't think that's why they lost in the playoffs by any means, but with all this talent and with all this flexibility that these players have, let's, let's have some fun here. Let's, let's, let's switch. Let's, let's see some Paul Reed at the five. Uh, let's see some PJ Tucker at the five once in a while. And, uh, that's what I'd like to see. And I guess the other thing, too, is like, what do you think the odds are, Joel? Maybe Joe, like, I, I wish I, I'm not going to bet on this because I don't bet on the NBA or the Sixers. Joel not winning MVP, but winning defensive player of the year. I think there's like an outside chance he focuses on that because l- lost in all of the I would love to win, win the MVP talk. He always is like, I would like to win the defensive player of the year, too. Yeah. It's just that Ben said that louder that people kind of focused on that. Yeah, I think it helps his case that Ben's not on the team. Yes, because exactly. It seems like it steals votes and people focus on one or the other. The change with Rudy will be interesting uh, because that is a team that you expect him to elevate them, but can they get up to you know the top three to five defense, which you almost need to be a defense player of the year? Maybe. And if he does that, he'll probably get a lot of accolades and credit for that. But yeah, he should. He could. Man, that team is that team's going to be so weird. Yeah, it's. Them in Cleveland are going to be the unbiased observer. Absolutely, them in Cleveland. I'm not sure those are going to work, but like the the no wings with two centers in Cleveland, and then a million centers in uh, in Minnesota with terrible guard defense too. It's yep. uh yeah, yep. but no, I think he's. I think he has a chance to be in top three, top three to five. Uh, whether or not he wins it, I think will largely depend on how Rudy. well the Sixers do and Rudy, and how well how much he can elevate them in the regular season. Let's say the Wolves are seventh. Pretty good. Pretty good because Rudy is just a very good regular season defender. What were they last year? I feel like last year they were real good defensively for the first half and then fell off of a cliff. So that sort of early season success with, which I think was probably a little bit of a mirage, might actually hurt Rudy because a jump won't seem as as drastic. Yeah, they were they were 13th last year, which is funny because when they played the Sixers, I was like, man, this is a really like easy team to score. Yeah. This is a really yeah. easy team to no, score. No, they were against. real aggressive, and Harden just picked them apart. Yeah. And I think the league sort of figured out their aggressive style of play and how much they were trapping on the perimeter. And then, you know, when you figure that out, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, shit, well, now the scheme's not working and our, our defenders are shit. You know, I think it came crashing down pretty quick. I, I would guess their post-All-Star break defensive rating was not good uh, no. if, I had to, uh, if I had to guess. And I don't remember because I think they were like legitimately like five or six at one point, like pretty deep into the season. And you're just sitting there going like, we're not this good. There's no way. There's no way. Um, So, yeah, I think a long way of saying that, I think even if they end up like seventh and they were 13th last year, people might look at that and go, "Ah, well, maybe like seventh isn't good enough to win the award. And the elevation Rudy gave wasn't as much as we were expecting. Then, yeah, I think Joel has a chance to sneak up there, assuming they have a top five, top three to five defense. Then, yeah, I think Joel has a chance. If they're if like Minnesota's like seventh. Oh, by the way, they were thirteenth last year. Uh, yeah, so it does not seem like quite as big of a jump. Yeah, and Rudy doesn't have the thing where he has the number one defense with four bad defenders around him. I I could see a scenario where let's say somebody like Luca or Giannis just has a crazy unassailable MVP year, but Joel is second in that, and the Sixers also have like a top two or three defense. I could see the. The media narrative being like, man, we got to get this guy an award. Like, this is ridiculous, like how well he's played over the past couple of years. So 
I, I would just be on the lookout for that because I, I do think he's going to have the ability to try harder on that end. And if I had to guess, like, where are the Sixers going to finish defensively? I'm just going to say a very, not a round number, but uh, I'm going to say they're going to finish fifth in and in defense just because I, the small backcourt puts a limit on it a little bit, but that's more of a playoff issue for me than a regular season issue. Yeah. I might even be a little, I might say third, um, but three to five is sort of like where I was thinking. <sighs> I think they should be a dominant regular season defense. Yeah. Really you do. Oh, you think they should be a dominant regular season team I do. every time you keep I do. saying this. I yeah. have, I have very, uh, barring injury, I have very little doubts. I have very little, I, my concern and you'll probably get annoyed of me saying this is, is it going to translate into the playoffs specifically offensively, but a little bit defensively too. I, I do think Joel's impact drops a little bit, maybe not quite as much as Rudy's impact drops just because Rudy is the most dominant regular season offender and a little more of a liability on a perimeter than Joel is. So I think his, his impact won't drop as much as Rudy's does, but I think it's harder for a big man to have that kind of impact in the playoffs. But specifically offensively with James, with Joel, will they find the same level of success? And a big part of that will just be like, how does jo- how does James Harden look physically? Um, yeah. That will always be my question, but I have very little confidence or very little doubt, very little confidence. One word, minor change in the way a statement comes across. I have very little doubt this team, if healthy, should win 53 to 57 games. Agreed. And one last small point on the defense this is more of a rotation point, but it also should be said because, you know, when you bring in guys like Melton House and Tucker, Matisse Stiebel, how much does he play? Yeah. Yep. And has his offense improved enough to where he can be in that rotation on a regular basis and where he can be a all NBA level defender? His offense has to catch up enough for him to get those minutes to earn that. It's, it's just crazy. This team has that much depth and we've talked about Matisse's foibles here long enough but the fact that a guy who has made all defense he's been voted one of the 10 best players on half of the court we're like yeah i don't know we'll, we'll see it's gonna be a battle for him to get minutes <laughs> yeah. but i think that's that's true and uh i if i had to guess he's gonna get a shot at some point of the season just because he's that talented but it's uh it's gosh i wish not- you meant that in a different way like he would get a shot like oh yeah. yeah yeah i've been on fire with accidentally saying uh calling Tobias Rich, too, as well. Uh, yeah, but is he a huge part of this defensive scheme? Because while his defensive skill set is still unique, it's the, the impact is not as unique on this team as it was on past Sixers teams, especially last year. All right, I think that is a good place to cut it off. Rich, see you on Monday, and I'll see you a lot next week. We will do a couple of in-person podcast where i get to actually be in the same location as you but thank you for jumping on and we will talk to you soon see you man